lovers. Welcome to Get Real, a podcast hosted by the National Animal Interest Alliance, through which we'll have deeply honest conversations about animal research so we can learn together and make compassionate choices about our medical future together. Welcome to episode 16 of Get Real. I'm Dr. Cindy Buckmaster, your host for Get Real. And today we're going to start digging deeper into exactly why only 5% of the drugs developed and tested with animals actually make it to market. Groups that oppose research with animals continue to tell lawmakers and the general public that this is no surprise because animals are basically worthless as models for the human condition. But is this true? Is it really as simple as that? Or is there something else, something buried deep within the biomedical research process that can better explain this abysmal lack of translation between animal studies and treatments for disease? Joining us today to start our discussions on this topic is Dr. Adrian Smith, a pioneer in laboratory animal welfare and a valued partner to the biomedical research community and everyone else who cares deeply about animals and people. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Adrian Smith. This is a really important episode when it comes to the Raw Truth series of Get Real. Um, and again, for our listeners, the RAW is an acronym for Reproducibility and Animal Welfare. And Dr. Smith, who's joining us today, has been one of the leading voices in this area from the onset with respect to solving the problem. And one of the things I really want to talk about today, Dr. Smith, is that um, you know there are people out there in the research community and maybe even the general public who just don't think the reproducibility crisis is as big a deal as it is, right? You know, we've been talking about it for over 10 years and you know what, there's always variability in biology and you know, and I think this whole thing is just overstated. And so I want to have an opportunity to discuss with our listeners and the general public what it really does mean for them and their well-being and the well-being of everyone they love, including their pets. But before we do that, it would be great if you can just give our listeners a little information about your background and uh, and the organization you're with now, Noracopa, and what brought you to that place. And then after that, maybe we can talk a little bit about Noracopa's mission, because I think it's super beautiful and super valuable and super important for moving forward in the direction of stronger science, faster cures, and fewer animals. Well, thanks, Cindy. And thank you very much for the opportunity to talk about this. this is a subject which I feel very strongly about. I'm a veterinarian by training. I studied at Cambridge University, and um, I thought I was going to end up as a small animal veterinarian and specialize in, in surgery. So um, it was uh, quite a change for me to end up in uh, animal research instead. And like many things in life, it was pretty coincidental. I met a, a girl from Norway, and we got married just before I finished my studies at Cambridge. And and we moved to Norway. And as I felt I needed a bit of time to get to know the way Norwegian vets operated and learn the language, I thought um, I'll start by taking a safe job at the veterinary school in Oslo, where I, I've got time to get into the culture and, and the way of life and the language, and the, the way of being a vet in Norway. And I got a job at the veterinary school working as a research assistant. And this was an area of which I knew very little, really. Um, we, I think we only had about two hours of laboratory animal science during my veterinary studies in, in Cambridge. But 
uh, I realized, of course, that a, a lot of the principles I'd learned in veterinary medicine applied to research animals as well. I just had to add on a lot of extras like learning how to plan and conduct uh, well-designed scientific experiments. And that's really what we're talking about today. So I ended up in laboratory animal science from this coincidence, really, that I, I moved to a foreign country. But I then found it really interesting. I took a PhD in laboratory animal science. And uh, I stayed at the vet school for 30 years, supervising animal research, conducting some myself and teaching veterinary students, and not least applying for accreditation of the veterinary school's laboratory animal facilities by an organization called ALAC International, which gave a really good opportunity to look at all the elements of our work and make sure that they were being performed to the best possible standards. What it taught me was the importance of attention to detail when managing an animal facility and when planning animal research and how the best planned experiments from a scientific point of view could be ruined by small details in practice, for example, um, forgetting to calibrate an instrument or chemicals uh, thawing out because somebody had forgot to check the freezer was cold enough. These sort of details which affect both scientific quality and not least health and safety. There are all sorts of potential health risks, but both for the staff, the researchers, and the other animals uh, in a facility. When you're doing animal research, we often bring dangerous chemicals or radioactive isotopes or x-rays into a research facility, and we have to know how to use those properly. So it taught me a lot about that. Simultaneously, something else was happening. I was one of the first people at the vet school who had a, a computer. Personal computers were coming on the market, and we were playing around with these. And a few academics and other institutions started developing computer simulations for some of the experiments that are frequently used in undergraduate training within physiology and pharmacology. A lot of these experiments involved animals, frogs, rats, mice that were killed or anesthetized and then experimented on by the students. And uh, a lot of us considered this pretty unethical and we were looking for alternatives. And the advent of these personal computers meant that you could develop simulations of these experiments, which worked perfectly well in the teaching session. You didn't have to kill a, a rat to, to demonstrate a physiological effect to the students. So we started collecting information uh, about these alternatives. We knew about one or two, and then the snowball started rolling. And as we contacted people, we heard about more and more. So we developed a database called Norina with information on commercially available alternatives to animal use in education and training. And that was one of the first databases that we produced. It was launched in 1991 and came online in 1996. And uh, that did two things. First of all, it increased my interest for alternatives to animals in not only education, but also in research. And also it became the beginning of the website, which we now have at Noricopa. And then another thing happened all through the 1980s and a large part of the 1990s, there was a lot of aggression against animal research from animal activists. It was a, a difficult time, a dangerous time for many scientists. And it was very unpleasant being a lab animal veterinarian as well, because we were also be confronted by uh, angry activists who threatened actions against both the facility and us and our families. And to try and do something about this situation, which was getting really gridlocked and scientists were not always helping the situation. They, for example, there were some posters produced by an organization that said things like, thanks to animal research, these people can protest for another 20 years longer than they would have been able to do otherwise. Okay, The two sides, those who were 
doing animal research and those who were against it weren't talking, basically. They were just shooting at each other from their trenches. And a group of scientists in the 1990s decided to do something about this and they formed an organization called ECOPA, which stands for European Consensus Platform on Alternatives. And the concept of ECOPA was that they would approve any national consensus platform, an organization in a European country that had all the four major stakeholders in its governing body. That is representatives of industry, academia, the regulators, and animal welfare. When you say animal welfare, you mean the animal rights community. I want to make that distinction because we think of them as different things here. We had to talk to those who were prepared to sit around a table with those doing animal research. So it was the more pragmatic members of the animal rights community, but all the same people who were fundamentally opposed to animal research. So um, about six or seven countries developed uh, national organizations or, or had an organization already which had all these four stakeholders in their governing body. And uh, Norway was interested in becoming a member of ECOPA. And we managed to get some money from the uh, Norwegian Ministry of Agriculture to establish NORECOPA, which is the Norwegian consensus platform for uh, alternatives. And I became the secretary of NORECOPA when it was established eventually in 2007. And from 2011, I've had that as my full-time employment. That's amazing. So what major categories of information are available on the Noracopa website um, related to alternatives and anything else? Alternatives can mean a lot of things to different people. Many people think that the only alternative to animal experiment is to replace them totally with non-animal material. But we use a concept called the three R's, which was developed in the UK in the late 1950s. And these three R's are replacement, reduction and refinement. So what we try and do is replace animal experiments with alternatives that don't involve animal use. If we can't replace them totally, then we look for reduction, ways of reducing the number of animals we use. So in the old days, a scientist might say, oh, I need 50 mice, because 50 is a nice round number and mice are small and cheap. Now we would say to him or her, well, I don't think you actually need exactly 50. Work out mathematically how many you need to get a significant result in your experiment, and then that's the number we use. So that's reduction. And then the third R is refinement. And what we then try and do is with the few animals that we have to use in the experiment, we make sure those animals are as happy as possible, that we reduce their experience of pain or distress to an absolute minimum, preferably eliminated altogether, and also refine the experiment so that the data coming out of it is as valid as possible, that it's reproducible, that it really reflects the effect of the treatment and not the fact that the animal's stressed. And that's a, a crucial area which we need to work more on as long as we still use animals in, in research and testing. So Norico works for all these three R's. As we're a small organization, we can't cover all the three R's in equal detail. One of our strengths is that we have a very good database, which now has information on about two and a half thousand resources that can be used instead of animals in teaching and education, right from schools, alternatives to the use of frogs in dissections, for example, in schools, through university, where we have alternatives to animal use in undergraduate courses like physiology and pharmacology, and through 
to the needs of scientists and technicians who are going to end up using animals in research, but who can practice the techniques that they were going to have to use on models instead. So they make all their mistakes on a model which can't feel any pain so that their techniques have been refined by the time they actually pick up a living animal. And that, I think, is a great improvement. So that's one of the things NoriCorp has done. But We've also developed a number of other databases and we built all these into one big website. We have, for example, a database we call 3R Guide, which is a global overview of guidelines that have been developed all over the world to help scientists conduct good animal research. This was actually started as a collaboration with a US organization, AWIC, the Animal Welfare Information Center. They helped us to collect guidelines from all over the world, and we've continued to collect new guidelines as they've been produced over the years. We have another database called TextBase, which includes information on about 1,500 books and other literature that scientists can use to learn more about the care, husbandry, and use of animals in research. And we have a lot of web pages with links to scientific papers and other resources on how to care for animals that are used in research and how to conduct and plan better experiments. And all this has been put together into one website that now has nearly 9,000 pages at the address norikopa.no. Wow. Well, it sounds like a critical organization. So I want to encourage everyone listening, go to Noricopa and dig around in there. Um, you will learn a lot about research in general. I mean, the regulations are slightly different in, uh, in that part of the world relative to the United States, but the goals are the same. The, the mission of the three R's is the same. The push for alternatives when possible is the same. And I want to talk a little bit about this reproducibility crisis, because I think to some people in our listenership and in the public in general, they're still like, you know, so I don't know, what is the reproducibility crisis? And is it really such a big deal? I mean, we understand that, yeah, it means that people can't repeat studies, but does that really matter? I mean, what impact does that really have on the lives of the people listening to this conversation right now and on the lives of everyone they love, including their pets, right? So what about the reproducibility crisis? What does that mean with respect to treatment and cures. Yeah. It's an interesting balancing act, really, because um, we want to make sure that an exact same treatment always gives the exact same effect on an animal if possible, so we can replicate the situation and demonstrate that the treatment we're given has an effect. On the other hand, we're working with really complex organisms. Animals are, are so complex, they have so many body systems that we understand very little about, and they live in very complex environments. There are all sorts of variables there that can affect them. The temperature, humidity, light, sounds, smells, food, bedding to the people who are handling them, who can also stress them. And science is all about looking for novel effects. So we don't want to miss interesting effects of a treatment which are there, but we want to make sure that the ones that we are measuring are really a cause of the treatment we gave to the animals and not just an artifact. There's a saying that we use a lot in the laboratory animal setting that happy animals makes good science. And to give you an example of that, let's say you want to test a drug that can lower the blood pressure 
nature of patients. If you put this into an animal which is stressed, then it'll have high blood pressure before you even start. And the drug may not even have a chance to work on this animal because uh, the blood pressure is high because of the stress and you won't actually see any reduction in blood pressure during the experiment because it is too stressed to demonstrate that. So you've missed an effect of a drug. And in many cases, the effect of a new drug might not be particularly large. So we want to be able to pick up small effects and therefore we have to make sure that this background noise is as low as possible. So planning experiment is all about trying to reduce this unwanted background noise, to reduce the variables that we know about. We try and remove the stress and remove the things that are obviously going to affect the data coming out of the experiment. This is a complicated subject and there have been various attempts to standardize animal experiments, some which have been more successful than others. And the latest feeling now is that although obviously we must make sure the animals are not stressed and remove that type of variation, the best thing to do is probably embrace this variability and use other statistical methods to take account for the fact that things will vary in an experiment if it's repeated, even in your own lab or in somebody else's lab. So there are now statistical ways of managing the data coming from these experiments. But it's a really good goal to try and make sure that the animals are as happy as they possibly can be. So they live in harmony with their surroundings. They are handled by people who know them well and who they know, so they're as relaxed as possible. And that the treatments we give to the animals are as non-invasive as possible. There are a lot of simple tricks you can do here, which scientists may not be aware about. For example, let's say you've got a pen of pigs that need injections, you can um, make sure that you give all the injections to the pigs at feeding time. So while they're busy uh, with their noses in the pig trough getting their food, you can slip the injection under their skin. They'll hardly notice it. Uh, In fact, they'll even line up for more food and the next injection without even realizing what's going on. So we try and look for as many ways as possible of refining the experiment to reduce the impact on the animals, because this is good, not just from an ethical point of view, but also from a scientific point of view. Right. And I think that's key again, when we're talking about the reproducibility crisis, if we aren't doing these things, then just as you mentioned, we may miss the fact that there is an impact and effect of a particular drug we're trying to evaluate. And then it just gets thrown out and it never makes it to the market for the treatments you and I and everyone we love continue to ask for every single day, right? Or we get an effect that may not be related at all (laughs) to the question and may have more to do with artifacts related to stress. And then we go and we send that through the pipeline and then eventually that drug doesn't work. And and that brings me to my next question for you. There's this this claim that 95% of the drugs that appear effective in animals simply don't work in people. And that's because animals are just too different from people to teach us anything of real value for people. Do you think that's true? I mean, what do you think about that? Is that why 95% of the drugs fail? Because animals are useless as models for the human condition? I think it depends a lot on what you try and compare. I mean, uh, we don't go around on four legs and have fur and long tails, but we have a lot of enzyme systems in our bodies which are virtually identical with those in another mammal, for example, the rat. And it depends a bit on whether the animal research is looking at very specific effects within the body that are 
duplicated in humans or whether you're just sticking a needle into a, a rat and expecting it to have the same response as a human which it probably won't because we go around on two legs we don't have fur uh, we live in totally different settings we don't eat different food so it's a bit up to the scientists themselves to make sure that they plan experiments which are likely to be relevant to humans and the trend now is to look far more at what we call metabolic pathways the pathways within the body that a drug goes along while it's being metabolized in in the body rather than looking at the major affection of the animal getting sick or the liver getting uh, inflamed which we would have done in the old days or even worse counting dead bodies on monday morning when we come back after the weekend we're now trying to do studies where we're looking at small components in the animals which we know are duplicated in humans if they are the target organs. I mean, sometimes we're doing animal research to help animals themselves. Um, we do a lot of research that's really part of veterinary medicine to improve the lives of animals as well, among other things, develop vaccines for them. So um, we can do quite a lot ourselves to improve the reproducibility. So to say that, you know, that 95% of the drugs fail because people and animals are so different is just patently false. And I think that's important too when we talk about replacement. Is there a way for us to replace animals to study these pathways in every situation? Or are some animals still going to be necessary in order for us to understand how these biological processes work? Uh, again, it depends very much on the situation you're talking about. We now have a, a large range of non-animal methods, organs on a chip, for example, where we can culture human cells and measure effects using human tissue. And this has caused an interesting debate in scientific circles because those who are proponents of these alternatives say that you know this can soon replace all animal research. Where scientists who still feel they have a need for animals will say, well, this is just a small part of the human body. When we give drugs to humans, they don't just react on the one organ you have on your chip. They pass in the blood to other organs. There are effects on things like blood pressure on the nervous system, which you can't simulate at the moment. So on one hand, we are seeing an enormous development of non-animal methods, which will reduce the number of animals drastically. And on the other hand, we still need the whole body to make sure that the treatment we're developing will actually work when it's put into a complex organism like a human. And what concerns me at the moment is that um, when I go to scientific meetings and hear people presenting the methods that don't use animals, that there is a tendency to oversell the value of these non-animal methods and forget that in some situations we do actually need to use a whole animal. And likewise, the scientists who use Animals tend to oversell the animal as the perfect model and maybe are reluctant to think about using these non-animal methods, probably among other things because they know very little about them and their capabilities. And I think this knowledge gap needs to be addressed. I really enjoy going to meetings where both these specialists are present so they can exchange ideas and be honest with each other and say, yes, this technique looks good, but it has its drawbacks. And that way we can advance the three R's together and gradually replace animals where it is possible to do so. So I think the future is bright, particularly in cases like routine testing, where we know what we're looking for, we can develop alternatives there and reduce the number of animals drastically. In cases where we don't know what we're looking for, then I think for considerable time to come, we're, we're going to have to put these drugs uh, or treatments into a complex organism like an animal so we can see 
all the possible effects that it has on that animal. But we can do a lot to refine that. Uh, in many cases, we can do the experiment on an animal that is totally unconscious, that's under an anesthetic, and that doesn't wake up from that anesthetic. So they don't experience any pain whatsoever. There are a lot of refinements we can do, or we can give really small doses of our new drug to an animal so they don't notice any clinical effect at all, but we can detect an effect, say, in the blood sample we take from that animal. And that we can even do in humans as well. We can give micro doses, really small doses of a drug to humans that don't endanger them in any way, but which have an effect which we can measure in, for example, a blood sample. So there are a lot of promising ways of reducing the number of animals used in animal research and testing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Get Real's tagline is stronger science, faster cures, and fewer animals. And you touched on something um, that I think is really important, right? I mean, there are people who are pushing very hard and saying that alternatives can replace animal research entirely. And that's because in some part of their heart, and I think this is true for all of us, we want that to be true, right? I mean, none of us like the fact that animals really are still necessary for us to understand biological systems and test the effect of drugs. So we want that to be true. And I think part of that is, is a wish, but it's not completely grounded in fact. Absolutely. I'm trained as a veterinarian and my role in life is to take sick animals and make them healthy. In laboratory animal science, I do the exact opposite. So it's a real ethical dilemma. And uh, unless you have a heart of stone, then uh, you're bound to react. So when you see animals that are, are suffering anyway as a result of treatment um, when they were initially healthy. So there are all sorts of really strong drivers, not just the legal uh, reasons, but also the, the ethical driver to reduce suffering and implement alternatives. But it gets complicated when we're talking about testing drugs that are going to be put into humans. You know, the question is, if you go to the pharmacy because your kid's sick and you want some painkillers, for example, and the pharmacy says, well, I've got two types here. One's tested on animals and we know the likely effects of that and the, the other isn't. Which are you going to choose? I mean, are you prepared to let your child be the guinea pig and give him or her a, a drug that hasn't been tested? If you've got a kid with a high temperature and who's really sick, you're going to want them to get better as soon as possible and you're likely to choose the one that has been tested. In a lot of situations, that unfortunately still today means that they have been tested on animals at some stage. So, I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, in addition to um, having to know what happens in a whole organism in the testing phase of things, we certainly are learning about biological systems, both health and disease, by studying animals. And that's what informs drug development. And I would prefer otherwise. We're just not there yet, right? When we talk about reducing the number of animals and the current context of how far alternatives have developed, yes, I think we should create some overall strategy to incorporate them into all of our work. Because as you say, there are researchers who just don't know enough about them. And I think we could be using more of them as we address certain questions in combination with whatever it is we still need animals for, right? But the other part is, I think we waste a lot of animals. We waste a lot of animals because we aren't designing our studies properly, which is what I'm going to ask you to talk about. And we're not reporting all the details, right? How are the animals cared for? What kind of bedding are they on? You know, all these things that we've started to talk about and get real. And so we have to start reporting that. And so these guidelines called the ARRIVE guidelines uh, were created to help researchers include all of this important information. And, you know, on your website, there's a video that mentions if you're going to bake a cake and you only get some of the ingredients, you're not going to bake the same cake. And that was the whole point of the ARRIVE guidelines. But if what you're reporting is based on studies that haven't been well conceived and haven't addressed all of these details to begin with, then you're reporting information that has lost its value from the start, right? 
Yeah, back to the analogy with a cake. If you burnt a cake, however well you describe it, the cake won't become any better. It's burnt. So the only thing you can do about that is bake another one at a lower temperature and maybe change the ingredients at the same time. So if you think of the scientific process as a pathway, obviously at the end of the pathway, you need to report what you've done. That's where ARRIVE comes in. That's one actually of many guidelines uh, that have been developed. It's probably the most comprehensive one. But I remember when I first got into animal research, there were papers in 1985 complaining about the low level of detail in scientific papers. The people were writing, for example, white mice were used as if every white mouse was identical and giving far too little information about the animals, the environment they were kept in, the treatment they were given. And uh, worryingly, for example, if they'd undergone surgery, very few details about the anesthetics or painkillers that were used. And, and if they don't mention any painkillers, then obviously you have the nasty feeling that maybe they didn't use them either. So there's been focus on poor reporting as long as I've been in this environment. That's nearly 40 years now. And a number of guidelines have been produced over the years. The ARRIVE guidelines were first produced in 2010, and they describe in detail the items that should be reported when you're writing a scientific paper about animal research. The problem is that there's a lot of information and journals who want to get as many papers as they possibly can into each issue don't necessarily want to provide scientists with the space to report absolutely everything that, that should be reported. And this has been an issue, you know, scientists, when they plan animal experiments, they'll go to the literature and look for methods from published research. And if the methods aren't described in enough detail, then they'll have to guess how the study was performed and, and maybe choose different techniques, different treatments than the ones that gave the results in the scientific paper. So it's really important that the information is reported somehow or other, or that the scientists go to the, the authors of the paper and say, look, I need more information. How can we get that? This is a, a long story, but the ARRIVE guidelines were revised in 2019 to um, reduce the number of items that that they want journals to enforce compliance with to make sure that anyway the most essential items are mentioned in the scientific papers. So they made an essential list of 10 items that every paper should report and then an additional list of 11 other items which they hope in time journals will start enforcing as well. But as I said, reporting is too late to do anything about the experiment itself. You can only report what you've actually done. And at the other end of this pathway, at the beginning, you need guidelines for planning an experiment. There are a lot of additional items which you won't see in reporting guidelines, but which need to be in planning guidelines. Collaboration with the animal facility to make sure that they have the equipment, the rooms, the infrastructure, the competence, the training to perform your experiment. You're unlikely to mention this in a scientific paper, but it's really crucial to the experiment that you've checked that everything is in place to be able to do this experiment. Not only that, if you need to buy in a equipment or send people away on, on training before an experiment, who's going to be paying for that? So there has to be a division of labor, a division of cost, a division of responsibility, so that you make sure that all the data is recorded during the experiment. So you don't risk a terrible situation where a scientist comes back to a facility a year or a year and a half after the experiment and says, hey, I think I'm going to get this study published in a really good journal, but they're asking me what the temperature was in the animal room. What was it? And if nobody recorded it, then they got a problem. And worst case, they may not be able to publish that data, which is a total waste of animal lives and, and human resources. 
So we developed guidelines for planning animal experiments. We developed them actually over a 20-year period for use on courses in laboratory animal science that we were conducting at the veterinary school in Oslo for young researchers. We never published them because we just had them in the compendium in lab animal science for these students because we thought this was basically so obvious that it wasn't necessary to publish it. It wasn't rocket science. It was just a description of the variables that you should be thinking about. And then there was a meeting in Brussels organized by the EU Commission in December 2016, where people were talking about the way forward in animal research and how to solve this reproducibility crisis. And people were standing up and saying, in addition to the reporting guidelines, we need good guidelines for planning animal research. So we thought, right, we've we've got these guidelines, we better write them up properly and publish them. Uh, A few months later, we published them in collaboration with colleagues in both Norway and the UK as Prepare, which consists of two things. It consists of a checklist with 15 main topics and about 40 subtopics of things that you should think about when planning animal experiments. And this checklist has now been translated into 30 languages and a website where we go into more detail about each of the topics on the checklist. If scientists look at the checklist and they see an item they don't know much about, they can go to the website and learn more about it. And we update that website all the time as new guidelines are produced, as new scientific papers are published about the topics on the checklist. So we now have planning guidelines, uh, the prepare guidelines at the beginning of the pathway, and we have reporting guidelines like arrive at the very end. And I believe these are equally important, that they are complementary, and they are part of the total process of ensuring the quality of animal research. And prepare obviously also emphasizes the three R's of reduction, replacement and refinement. And the very first topics on the prepare list are in fact about, you know, whether you need to do this experiment at all? Are there alternative methods? Have you gone to the literature and looked for alternatives? That should be the first thing you think about when you're planning experiments that may involve animals. So that brings me to, I think, an obvious question. And I'm sure that people listening right now are thinking exactly what I'm thinking, right? Why do trained researchers need checklists to do this work well and reduce this reproducibility issue? I don't want to give people the impression that the reason why there is a so-called reproducibility crisis is that people are negligent or or ignorant. It's not because scientists are purposefully abusing the situation. It's just that there are a lot of variables. And in many cases, I think they do need help to understand animal biology and all the behavioral aspects and the aspects of veterinary medicine that lab animal specialists know about, and not least the technicians themselves. They are tremendously important resource. They are the front line. They, They see the animals every day. They'll see the slightest differences in behavior. The first signs of illness. And it's really important, in my opinion, that they do most of the hands-on work with the animals because they know the animals best, the animals trust them, and they're likely to be least stressed if they are handled and and treated by people they know. So what we try and emphasize with PREPARE is the need for collaboration from day one between the scientists and the animal facility to make sure we've thought about all these issues. This isn't just so that the scientists can tick all the boxes on the checklist and 
and get permission to do research. It's so that they are made aware of all the issues that can affect the validity of the data which they're getting out of the animals. So unlike reporting guidelines, which are being enforced by journals, we are offering prepare on a voluntary basis to the scientists unit users. And we hope you will find it useful, but we're not forcing you to do so because I think they're far more likely to accept it. Another thing I'd like to say is that a lot of the contents of Prepare was inspired by the way the aviation industry used checklists. If you think about it, on a, just a short internal flight of an hour or so, pilots may use 10 or 15 checklists during the course of that flight, however experienced they are, however many times they've flown that route, to make sure that they don't forget anything, that they do everything in the right order, that everybody, both on the ground and in the plane, are literally on the same page. And it's always interesting, I think, when you hear descriptions of emergencies in aviation, the first things pilots do is to get out their checklists. And you saw that when Captain Sully in the Hudson River, the first thing they did was pull the checklist out to see how to tackle the situation. And that shows the immense value of checklists, even though you have thousands of hours of flying experience. And that's what we're hoping scientists will appreciate with PREPARE, that even if you think you know all about planning animal research, that it's always a good idea to look at the checklist. Right. I mean, there does seem to be a lot of pressure on uh, our researchers to publish. And I think maybe this pressure sometimes causes them to miss some things, just like you say. And so checklist is good to have. I mean, it comes right back down to the disconnect between the lab animal professionals and the researchers and a consideration for all of the information that this variety of experts is aware of in order to characterize all of the details of the study. Because one group may not really see that there's an issue just because they don't understand the details involved in lab animal care and vice versa, right? So to me, that's my favorite part of the PREPARE guidelines is this communication between the research community and the lab animal folks is so essential. Um, And unfortunately, I mean, I have to say, I think it, it is very typical for the research groups and the lab animal science folks. Many of them, either they don't have strong communication or they're outright combative. And that's something I think that we need to work on resolving if we really care about people and animals and we really want to move science uh, forward. And that brings me to my next question. You know, this is clearly very important to you. Why is rigorous reproducible research that focuses on the three R's, why is that so important to you? What's motivated you all of these years? I think I realized very early on, although I had no intention of working with laboratory animals, that this was a group of animals that needed our veterinary expertise. And instead of spending a whole day treating one poodle, I could treat many hundreds of animals quickly and efficiently and make a difference to their lives. The veterinary surgeons are needed. And laboratory animal science is a young field still. It was 40 years younger when I started, and there was a lot to learn. And we needed guidelines for how to treat animals more humanely. And it's been a great pleasure to be part of that process of improving the standards of laboratory animal care and management. As I say, I started in the 1980s when things were a lot more primitive than they are today. And it's been great following those developments and meeting colleagues from all over the world who have contributed to this, who have developed better anesthetics, better painkilling drugs, better housing conditions for animals, being part of that and seeing this moving forward. And not least, meeting 
meeting colleagues who are developing alternatives to animal experiments. That's been a great pleasure because my ultimate aim is the same as the European directive that ultimately we want to replace the use of animals in research. It's just that it's going to take longer than I'll be on this earth. But in some areas, we've already replaced them. And in others, we're well on the way to be able to replace them. And it's great being a part of that process of advancing these three R's. That's what makes me sleep at night um, as long as society still feels this is necessary, that it's possible to help them to make sure that they suffer minimally and hopefully not at all in the experiments that are being carried out. That is The Raw Truth from Dr. Adrian Smith with Noracopa. Please look him up online and you'll be able to find a link to his website and other resources related to the PREPARE guidelines and all of the 3R initiatives that he's discussed in this episode in the episode response page for this episode. Dr. Adrian Smith, thank you so much for uh, everything you do and everything you've shared with us today. Thank you for inviting me. 95% of the drugs tested in animals to treat human disease don't make it to market. That's a fact. But it isn't because animals are worthless models for the study of human health and disease. And researchers who dedicate their lives to studying health and disease in animals so we can have the treatments and cures we want for ourselves and our loved ones are not the enemy. Failures in the biomedical research process are the actual cause of this problem. Yeah. We're still learning, and biological systems are more complex than nearly anything else we can think of. But as we learn today, we're not paying attention to important details. We're not communicating or collaborating as well as we should. And a lot of time, resources, and worst of all, animal lives are being wasted. It's the current nature of the biomedical machine, if you will, that's really driving the reproducibility crisis and our failures in translation from animal studies to human treatments. The question is, what's driving this machine? And how do we reset it? Join us for a deeper dive on the next episode of Get Real. I'm Dr. Cindy Buckmaster, your host for Get Real. And I hope what we learned today has inspired you to think more deeply about research with animals and what you would like to see change as we shape our medical future together. Please visit our episode response page for the link to the Noracopa website to learn more. You'll find the link in the lower right-hand corner of our website at getrealpodcast.info. And don't forget while you're there to visit our support link and make a small monthly donation to help us keep rolling. Your commitment to me will help me keep my commitment to you. We'll talk soon.